Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Athletic Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jorgensen, and I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Although all major sports and most research has been put on hold for the time being, we are continuing to bring you new content and interviews with guests from the sport and science communities. Today I'm joined by a fellow PhD student, Katie Mitchell, as we talk about sport injury rehabilitation. Specifically, we'll be talking about Katie's research on dynamic visual acuity and other complex tasks and their importance in the rehabilitation process following a sports-related concussion. Now, Katie brings in a number of great perspectives on this topic from her experience as an athletic therapist, an athlete, researcher, and educator. So let's get started. So welcome, Katie. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on here, Mike. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, join a fellow PhD here and kind of talk about our pathways and everything. So it's a good way to connect. Uh, yeah. I find it, it's been really helpful, a few that I've done so far. But taking it back a few years, um, I've worked in sports uh, probably since 2008, so it's probably about 12 years now. Okay. Um, and I grew up as a competitive athlete. I played hockey and soccer. Oh, nice. Pretty much from, you know, like elementary school ages all the way through, like as long as I can remember. Um, I also coached and did some things as well, like when I got out of high school. And while I was during my undergrad, uh, I kind of had the choice of, you know, pursuing the role of an athlete or like a student therapist. And me injuring my ACL upon entering my second year of uh, my undergrad determined that pretty quickly for me. Um, So I decided to take on the role as a student therapist and I was in the kinesiology program at Wilfrid Laurier and I started working with the men's rugby team in 2008 and I did three seasons with them and I also joined the women's hockey team as student therapist uh, in 2009 so I was working for both teams by the time I graduated and uh, so I was pretty keen I was like I'm going to be a you know a clinician I want to pursue yeah, yeah. physio athletic therapy kind of anything sports medicine related and um, so that kind of decided for me where I was applying and I was I didn't actually do any research in my undergrad (laughs) so um, I didn't really have any interest then uh, regarding that I was really hands-on I really wanted to apply these skills and work with people directly so I from after my graduation I went to Mount Royal University in Calgary and I did the athletic program or athletic therapy program there And so that was a nice experience. It was a one-year program at the time. And I got to work more with like football and wrestling and a little bit more with hockey, but a much more kind of like standardized way. Like, you know, I was going through the coursework at the time to actually apply directly to the field right after class. And so I really kind of honed in on those skills and learned a lot more, more exposure um, to injuries and things as well. Um, Like throughout that whole period, even from 2008, 2011, um, I saw a lot of uh, concussion injuries, and at that time, we did not have nearly the same protocols or assessment tools. I think we had like a pocket scat maybe on the sideline. Like it was pretty uh, scarce at the time, like research-wise, and that's probably why I didn't really have any interest at the time because there was no one really researching it. It really kind of started after that time, like 
2010 onwards. And so I, I really love what I did with AT. Um, however, that I still had that interest in neuroscience and neuro rehab. And so that kind of drove me to apply to PT school. And so I got into Queens kind of right out of AT school and I moved back to Ontario and uh, started my master's at Queens 2012. And uh, I continued to work with sports teams though. I, you know, there was the odd role the head athletic therapist can find me with um, like lacrosse and like they had OUA championships there. So continued to kind of keep my uh, experience in the field. Um, and I still worked a bit of rugby in the summers as well for clubs locally. And uh, so I've kind of always had some involvement with rugby over the past decade. And again, like still seeing some things that just weren't managed uh, the way that you really thought they should be. Um, and maybe like the advocacy for players was harder because we just didn't have anything to back up what we were saying. <laughs> um, right. Especially when it came to informing coaches and, you know, parents or like why maybe their kid or their athletes shouldn't be playing a sport because maybe they haven't recovered, but we had no way of actually showing that with the assessment tools at the time. And so uh, before you continue, just give the listener a very brief snapshot of what your area of research is on. So this, like this is where my history all kind of ties it in together of um, what my research itself is based upon kind of these sort of, clinical and application questions that I had brew up over those years, Um, especially after PT school, when I started working, I realized that these questions were still uh, very pertinent to me. And so it was particularly with things I couldn't really explain, like balance control and sort of the way that an athlete sees the field and can kind of interpret that information and then maybe don't be as efficient with their actions. And so my field of research now looks at Um, Like our lab is focused on kind of perception, action, integration. So how we perceive the world through our sensory systems, through vision, vestibular system, and our proprioception or a sense of uh, position sense. Um, How we take all that information and to produce actions. So like if that's something like passing a ball or, you know, stick handling, um, shooting a puck, like those kinds of things. Like how do we determine, you know, where you're going to do that or how you're going to get around a defender Um, and hit a gap or, you know, find the space, um, see a teammate to make a pass or receive a pass, um, all those kinds of things. And so... Yeah, so really like dynamic movements. Yeah, exactly. So my research really looks at integrating kind of all that stuff into and associating it with balance control and, like I said, that sensory integration. So looking at combining those silos of like, okay, we assess balance kind of individually, we assess vestibular individually and vision kind of, again, all separately. Um, if we can integrate those things together uh, to make a more challenging assessment um, or like rehab tool of some sort that meets the demands of sport a little more specifically, um, then it would be a better way to progress someone into returning to their sport. So returning to sport following specifically head injury? Uh, Yeah, particularly we're looking, like when I started, it was really focused on concussion and we still are including a lot of that because again, it was just, that's the main kind of injury that in particular encompasses all those different things. So, you know, all those symptoms and different signs of like balance control is now a cardinal sign of uh, a clinical domain of concussion. And it wasn't until 2016. And really the only assessment that was accepted at the time is a static assessment. It's the, right. the like the SCAD or like yeah. Any... So in the SCAD, the the best or the balancer scoring system is a static test where the athlete just stands with their feet together, 
um, you know, eyes open, eyes closed, and then they stand and kind of like do a heel toe tandem stance, and then they do a, a single leg stance, and it's all just kind of static, and you know, it's just eyes open, eyes closed. Um, but for me, that doesn't really like when I put on my clinician hat, it doesn't translate into how an athlete performs in a sport and what the balance control demands are. Um, cause usually they're performing an action or doing something and having to maintain balance. And they're also at a high speed, their heart rates elevated. There's all those other kind of physiological factors that may affect those things. And so that's what I really saw is that gap in the, the return to play protocol of once like an athlete's kind of asymptomatic and we get them into practicing, we sort of just like, there's no real good assessment, um, in that phase other than these kind of individual sort of more simple assessments. And some of those, you're talking about the, the balance test there, you know, that's, that's used typically to support some sort of diagnosis or removal from play to say there is something going on here. There's some sort of dysfunction present, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And then it doesn't really translate to that recovery piece, yet that's what we use or has been used for for that purpose as well, which is kind of beyond the scope of what it was originally intended for. Exactly. The the test is is valid and reliable for kind of the first couple of days after a concussion. And once those symptoms are gone, there's not really a significant difference between an athlete with and without a concussion. So it's good for that initial period because those really obvious deficits are there. Like it becomes much more difficult to observe those kind of differences with the human eye. And that's why we use things like force plates uh, and different analyses to actually pick up on some of these things for a more sensitive measure. And that's another piece is like the objective components that we're pulling in also just make these things a little more concrete in what we're actually finding with the results of it. So, you know, I get a parent right. in clinic asking me, well, what's the difference between a four and a six on out of 10 on this um, balance error scoring system? And really there's not a significant difference there and you know to try and explain that's the reason why their child's not able to return to their sport it's not enough evidence for the parent to really buy into it as well so it's sometimes hard to convince stakeholders you know when they're like well yeah of course they're like you know if a 12 year old looks like that um, do we even know what a 12 year old's balance should look like and we're assessing them based on a, a, um, a test that's developed for acute concussion for adults so Right. There's a lot of gaps in it, and there's a lot more research that definitely emerging in the last couple of years and along these lines. And my initial work in my PhD looked at visual motor tasks combined with balance tasks. So, like, it sort of looked like it was a lower limb reaching task that looked like a Dance Dance Revolution. And okay. <laughs> so that we used a, a FitLight trainer system. Uh, so what a FitLight is, they're basically like a light sensor, and you can put them kind of anywhere, but we put them in a semicircle on the floor in front of the athlete. And a go, no-go task is just basically red light, green light. So they were to right. kind of hover their, their non-stance limb over the green lights and then withhold movement for the red lights. So it was just all random throughout. And they were in single leg stance the whole time on a, on a Wii balance board that was collecting all the force data. And uh, we were able to tease apart. So we tested athletes. Um, so particularly a study that's um, looking to be published was assessing throughout the return to play protocol. And um, we kind of assessed like sort of initially through the asymptomatic phase in the earlier part of that protocol and then right before they returned to play. We compared them to teammates that hadn't had a concussion. So like same training level, same sport, um, same age roughly and, and sex. And um, they weren't really returning to like the normative value of their teammates um, by the time they were returning to play. 
And so there was something there with, again, that like perception action integration piece, like the way they were able to do the task kind of looked the same, but they're, when we really broke it down, their strategies were different. And uh, okay. so that was evident in that kind of like more complex integrated task that required quick movement, quick decision making, um, and also pretty complex uh, like demands for balance. So those are the kinds of things that we were like, okay, well, why is that happening? <laughs> um, we don't really understand because we didn't really assess vision. We didn't really assess anything like particularly to the sensory systems. Uh, and that's led to what we're doing now with particularly looking at like visual perception and then manipulating the, like the, the postural conditions. So whether they're doing it in um, standing or uh, walking on a treadmill and then measuring like the, how that affects things. And then once you get them on the treadmill, you're also going to affect physiology. So you're going to have heart rate changes. Um, so we're looking at a couple different intensities there as well to uh, see if the level of exertion actually affects um, visual perception as well. So it's really starting to bring in uh, multitasking to, to the process exactly, where yeah. that wasn't really any a thing before. So with that, that lower limb reaching task that you're talking about, what age group was that with? So there was a published study um, with youth hockey players aged okay. uh, 13 through 17, 18. And that was at a hockey academy. Uh, so they were like all on the ice, probably five, six days a week. You know, kids are so much more involved in sport these days. And yeah. so they were training in the gym together. They were training on the ice every day together in the academy. And so they were roughly around the same uh, level of competition. And these are like also kids that are trained to go into like the OHL and like sort of higher levels of sports. So they were pretty elite. And uh, we actually didn't even really, we went in and just we're going to test the kids basically and get normative values on this. And then we discovered throughout that a handful of them started reporting that they had had a concussion, you know, in the last couple of years. And so we, we kind of sort of filtered that group down to like not so recent concussions. So we didn't have anybody, I think, within, um, I, th I believe it was nine months, maybe it was post. So th if anyone was more acute than that, we didn't have them involved in that group. And we were able to still kind of identify some differences between the performance of the kids who had previously concussed uh, had had concussion injuries, but were returned, like they were playing, they had returned mm -hmm. to their sport, um, compared to the same youth hockey players, like as their normative comparators. So there was a couple of athletes that I actually ended up diagnosing <laughs> while we were testing them because they start going through the testing and kind of look at them and like, are you feeling okay? And they're like, you know what? I took a hit on the weekend and these kids are like younger. They're like maybe grade seven, grade eight. And they're just like, I wasn't really sure. And, you know, I don't feel good. And I have a headache. And it's like, okay, I think you actually have a concussion. Like, you know, they were <laughs> identified that way. And maybe they just hadn't really spoken up about it. And so we, we'd still included them in the, st like in the data collection, but we didn't put them in the analysis. And there was a couple right. that from, so we tested them over 70 days at that group. So we were in in the fall and then we came back um, at the end of the winter and so we wanted that two time points to see if there was any learning effects. And those kids who were concussed at one time and not the other, they showed significant changes in their performance um, and were performing more at like that normative level, even at the follow-up. So that was really interesting to see from a clinical perspective but in academia. For I can't sure. really put that anywhere in, a, in my yeah. data analysis. So, um, but we, we did see that. And for me, that was really significant when I kind of change hats and I look at things differently. Um, so it was kind of neat to see like, okay, we can identify these things and we can also kind of show recovery of some of it. So maybe it's a component of 
you know, if we rehabbed it properly, maybe those persisting impairments wouldn't really be as evident. Mm-hmm. Perhaps maybe the players that had a concussion, they maybe just didn't do any rehab. Maybe they, you know, and if they were younger at the time, like perhaps the clinician who assessed them maybe didn't look as far into vestibular or those kind of impairments that might linger a little bit. And especially in children, well, it's hard to report that. So yeah, exactly. Especially kids go through growth spurts or whatever. And, you know, who knows what their balance is like on exactly you know, like a month to month. And if you're looking at uh, and just at, just to clarify for those listening, most adults typically become asymptomatic or, or recover uh, relatively well from a concussion in on average about 10 to 14 days with children, youth and children, athletes, child athletes are usually three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. When Katie's saying that they're looking at athletes who haven't had a concussion in the last nine months, that's just a way to control for that variable, but still keeping that in mind that they do have a history of concussion too. Yeah. And so all the players that were included in the study were like asymptomatic, like d- diagnosed as recovered. Um, they just had right. a history of it. And so that's a lot of what we look at is these asymptomatic athletes in particular. And that was kind of, we originally, we did it with the varsity uh, athletes as well. So they were like 18 to 24. Um, yeah. And we kind of had the same findings throughout that return to sport protocol. So they were the ones that were kind of like initially kind of in that two weeks. So the two weeks to one month probably of their recovery. Um, and then mm-hmm. the youth hockey player study was they had already been playing for a few months. Like they'd been cleared for a few months. Like they hadn't had a recent concussion. So part of it is that we are trying to identify things like maybe earlier on that an asymptomatic person maybe doesn't notice, they can't report. But when they're really challenged that way, we start to see some differences that perhaps can be managed better for them to return to sport. And so that we don't have other concerns down the road. There's a lot of literature emerging now that's saying that athletes returning to play from a concussion have an increased risk of musculoskeletal injuries. That literature is starting to point towards this perception action integration impairment, potentially. It's not confirmed, but it's sort of like that's sort of what the big question mark is. Is like, why is that happening? Right. Um, and perhaps we're just not catching it. Perhaps we're not testing rigorously enough to pick it up earlier during their recovery and rehab. And it's something that carries forward that's just maybe not noticeable. Um, and some athletes may not have those impairments, but some may. Like, it's kind of, again, I'm not laying down like really firm. <laughs> yeah, um, concussion is a very individual experience, very individually. Exactly. Like, rather than use baseline testing, you chose group or normative averages. Uh, what was the rationale for that? Um, so, rather than individualized base testing, baseline testing for each individual athlete, you compared them to a group norm of non injured peers. So, in 2016, when they produced the new consensus, when they were like, okay, baseline testing isn't as you know, necessary as we once thought it was. Um, mm-hmm. And so that all of a sudden wasn't like a, a requirement. It was a suggestion. Um, and certain sp- levels of sport will still do it and it makes sense. But like there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, privately in, in clinics and things that were just pushing to get baseline testing. And it was a big business driver, I think. And so they kind of re- like, yeah. sort of reeled that in. So what we, like, this was right around the time we started testing these, like, we ran these studies in 2016, 2017. So it was right after that consensus kind of came out. And so we thought, well, what if, if we're testing athletes 
um, that are on the same team, they're within the same age group, same sex, same, like, you know, they're exposed to the same training. They're, if we're looking at athletic experience as a factor of how they should perform, like, balance-wise, and again, like, kind of those exposures to, like, how their sensory systems perceive things, if, they're, if they should be, like, roughly the same on paper, then we should be able to compare them to each other. And so we did kind of age, sex, gender, team match. <laughs> and so that was what we started. And we wanted just to see if how that looks. And it's it logistically worked out on paper. Um, and we've done it a couple other ways, too. And right now I'm using that same kind of idea of just comparing, like, those cohorts together and, like, the same sports together, um, maybe comparing different sports to each other and seeing if there's any differences there. Because if there's not, then... Like, it doesn't matter even if it is a basketball player or a hockey player, for example. Um, we could sure. potentially compare them if they're just, you know, same level of experience. That might actually be, for what we're doing with the visual perception and kind of like basically sport vision piece now, is that level of experience may actually enhance their performance. So if, you know, someone, if you look at the years that they've played a sport and the age, like someone who's been maybe playing since they were like, five, six years old has a better development of those skills than someone who maybe started in high school and has played like four or five years leading into their university career. So there's some things there that we're actually looking at where the level of experience and sort of reading them on a spectrum of athletic experience rather than just comparing them to themselves. Yeah. And it was interesting when that consensus statement said that uh, or suggested that around baseline testing too. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion. I know you mentioned that as baseline testing is a bit of a, like a business driver. Um, and I, I mean, I have my very strong opinions on baseline testing as well. But going back to your previous point about talking to parents and other stakeholders and, and knowledge translation, you know, in, in your professional practice, do you have parents who think, you know, who come up and say, well, everyone else is doing baseline testing? Well, we should be doing this or, well, it's not going to hurt. Should we, should we look into this? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. With this idea that it's, it's only going to help their, their child be, be more safe or recover quicker or whatever, whatever that desired outcome is. Right. Yeah. And I still think there's a place for baseline testing. I think particularly in that scenario, a lot of sport organizations haven't given up on that, uh, especially youth hockey and, different bigger organizations that, you know, there's a lot of liability there. So they see baseline testing as kind of a safety net of that. And so there's still requirements for that. I know in local like, community associations, they haven't gotten rid of it. And so they still are required to go seek out baseline testing using, and it's particularly using like the SCAT uh, assessment and maybe some other newer things that are kind of developing out. But that still exists, and I think there's a place for it. Like, I think at really high levels where there's a really consistent environment, it's it's appropriate. I think even at younger ages. Well, that's what I was gonna get to. The variability amongst younger age groups is really tough. It has to be followed up with almost yearly to really follow with development, because even what we're doing now with um, the visual perception and dynamic visual acuity we're going to be repeating the study with adolescents to actually see how it develops because mm. that like sort of motion perception and those kind of higher order visual skills develop continuously through adolescence and really kind of peak around like 21. So really if you're, and same thing with balance, like balance is still developing through adolescence and 
they even say that like there's a study out of Toronto that actually looked at boys versus girls and girls were actually performing better on balanced tasks than boys. And then they kind of caught up and leveled out in high school. And so even like looking at the, like, how do you say, <laughs> um, you know, if a, a, say a younger boy doesn't have great balance, but what if that's normal for him? And right. like single leg balance for a 12 year old is hard. <laughs> And it's hard for most people, I would say, like even older adults and stuff. So it's not really a super reliable measure. Like I said, there might be a four out of 10 on one day and then there may be a six on the other day. And they're like, well, my kids should be recovering. How come their balance is worse? And it's like, it's probably not worse. <laughs> it's probably roughly the same. It's really, really hard to identify that in like younger kind of the 10 to 13, 14 year olds, like because they're growing, their joints are changing you know, the biomechanics there, like a lot of them are just uncoordinated during that phase of growth. So it's, it's really difficult to pinpoint that. I'll give another example too, around this, this issue with some of the baseline testing is, you know, as a rugby player, I'd go into my university season, which starts at the roughly the end of August. And if we had to do baseline testing, it's like, it's a baseline for that season, but I also just came off five months of club or four months of club mm-hmm. rugby, so local local rugby. And then it's like, well, maybe we could do a baseline after the season or a couple months after the season. But then a lot of rugby players, at least here in Canada, play through like a, a winter sevens circuit. So there's tournaments every couple of weeks or, or whatever. So there's really not a downtime. So it's this idea of what is a baseline. And if you're only getting an average, like you said, like every two years, that might be severely out of date. However, if you take more frequent baselines, then you're risking uh, learning effects on that test. So that what I mean by that is the athletes becoming familiar with with how the test is run and being able mm-hmm. to uh, just getting better on their performance solely because they've done it four, five, six, seven times, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think too, amongst the rugby team and several other sports that have like key roles that are identified amongst players, they're going to have totally different skill sets physically than like forwards and backs versus like in same in football, different positions. So someone who's a prop may have different balance than someone who is a fly half. So that was something we took in consideration as a position match, actually, when we did test rugby players on that um, lower limb reaching okay. task, because it would look totally different. They have different skills to perform their roles, and some of those things require kind of greater finesse, let's <laughs> say. Uh, you know, yeah. there's some utility props out there who can cut pretty well. I'll give them that. But, I mean, their game is much more linear in the sense that they're kind of in the rock or in the scrums like that. And so I think... For sure what we did was we compared basically to their counterparts. And so if it was significantly different from their counterpart, like, and I, I mean that by like, you know, their age, position, sex matched, position matched uh, teammate, then that would be what we consider as a, like more of an impairment or abnormal, or there's somehow a deficit of that. And so what we're doing now, ideally with the visual perception stuff is to create a larger pool. Um, instead of just comparing like one in one, I want to create like a bigger pool of sort of normative values because by you know by a varsity age you should have developed most of those skills so through your exposures in sport through several years of training that you know your motion perception skills being able to track objects being able to see moving targets while you're in motion having your head on a swivel kind of stuff 
that should be developed and trained through the level that you have trained at through several years. And that should match roughly with your teammates who are training at the same level. I'm going to stop you there and just ask that. So you're talking about this visual acuity and then dynamic visual acuity. Do you want to just give the listener uh, a quick description of what you mean by those terms and, sure. and how they relate to your, your research project? And so uh, visual acuity is kind of exactly what you do at the eye doctor when you read your eye chart and, you know, you determine whether like nor- like within normal would be 20-20. And so that would be like you can see something at 20 feet that another person can see at 20 feet. Like once you get down to like 2016, you can see something at 20 feet that someone can see at 16 feet. So you have better acuity than the person who has to stand 16 feet away from the target to see it. Um, So dynamic visual acuity is when there's motion present between the target and the observer. So we have collaborated with the University of Waterloo Optometry and Vision Science for uh, my thesis work. And Dr. Christine Dalton has developed a task uh, that's digital and it's it's basically motion like you're tracking a moving target digitally and so you have to be able to see it uh, on the screen as it's moving at a very high rate and so it's it's a really challenging task and there's really no cheating on the task because you can only see what you can see basically and she's published some work I think a previous master student of hers showed that athletes were superior on this task compared to video gamers and non-athletes and so there was something again there of like perhaps the exposures to dynamic environments and movement and fast-paced gameplay and competition that maybe enhances that skill regardless of like training it specifically like you'd think a video gamer who's exposed to like stuff on screens like that would be better but they weren't so there's something else there that's existing and so those studies were done in seated so now we're starting to challenge it in progressive kind of postural and exertional uh, conditions to, to match the demands of sport, see if it changes. If, you know, the more challenging demands, maybe athletes actually perform better than people who don't have as much training in sport, because that's just how they've been exposed to things. So that's sort of the direction we're headed with uh, my thesis right now, which is pretty, it's pretty exciting so far. It's pretty fun to collect. Um, athletes really enjoy doing it. And uh, yeah, so far, I don't, I can't really reveal any more on that. But um we're yeah, kind of in sure. the middle of things with it, and it's it's coming through the woodwork. So, so looking at that dynamic visual acuity, the the idea is that it's just it's more more sports specific than something that's just a visual acuity test. Like you could have good eyesight, but you might not have good tracking skills for a ball or a player or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this this test aims to to dig into that more so than just just the acuity itself. Yeah, exactly. Like you think of does you know a seated static visual acuity trust uh, test transfer into a sport environment. Um, there's more uh, like tech coming out where athletes are doing a lot more perceptual training and like 3D multiple object tracking, uh, like NeuroTracker is an example of that. And so these things are starting to emerge in the industry and they're starting to realize that sometimes those skills are what separates like the elite from sub-elite is the ability, like you think of like, they always said Wayne Gretzky's best ability was to be able to see the ice and see like his teammates, see the puck. Those kinds of skills actually make maybe the most elite athletes potentially. And so that's why we look at like athletic experience as a big piece of that too. Cause you know, someone who's been doing this for so long, they're gonna have different skills than someone who's just started. So could you give an example? I know you had the, the Gretzky example there, but an example of, uh 
you know, you said some sports are integrating this tech and, and putting it into their training. Is there an example of, of a position or a, or a sport or, or an example of the tech itself that you can give? Uh, yeah, so I uh, mentioned like the NeuroTracker is a company in Montreal that does uh, the 3D multiple object tracking. There's other ones like there's peripheral vision boards, um, like the DynaVision boards where they do reaction time with vision. Um, there's even like the FitLight trainer that we use can be used as a, a visual perceptual reaction time task or visual motor task actually. And, and so uh, take me through one of those tasks then. So, you know, if I'm a participant, what, or if you're the participant, say, what would you experience as you go through that task? Like what, what would you be expected to do? So all the like different tech will have different sort of purposes of what they're actually training. Um, some of them are a little more, like I said, visual motor versus some are visual perceptual. So some things might be just tracking moving targets. So, you know, that game where you shuffle, like you have three cards in front of you and you know, the person says, you know, remember which card I showed you? And then they shuffle them around and move mm-hmm. the, the card. And then you have to figure out where, it's, where it is when they're done. Um, that's kind of like multiple object tracking. They'll show you like, say, seven spheres on a screen. And then they'll highlight two, of the, two or three of them as yellow at the start. And then they all go the same color. And then they sort of float around the screen. And you have to actually track like the two or three spheres that were highlighted at the beginning and be able to identify them after. That's an example of multiple object tracking. So that's a little more of a, an attention kind of perceptual task. And things like the fit light trainer or the um, DynaVision boards where like it's a hand eye task or eye foot task where say there's a light that flashes and you have to respond to it as quickly as you can. Um, and it might be in peripheral vision. It could be in central vision. Um, but those types of things are being used in like professional sports now and um, different platforms where they're seeing the benefits of training those skills and in, in performance. So what are you hoping comes out of, uh, I guess you can't talk about that too much. You should have <laughs> me back on once, once you're all done your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Still got a lot of data collection to go, but we're in the midst of like yeah. first study now and it's going really well. So it should be pretty interesting. <laughs> Um, so who actually, I, was, I should have asked this earlier, who's your supervisor? Oh, yes. I shouldn't uh, just leave him out, should I? <laughs> it's Dr. Michael Chinelli at Laurier. <laughs> okay. He is the, and then... And so Christine Dalton is the other collaborator on the project. He is particularly focused on the perception action integration. Again, like how our environments, um, how different factors in the environment can affect like an individual's decision to produce an action. So he does a lot of uh, like walking locomotion studies. And, you know, like collision avoidance. So, you know, there could be like two people on the same trajectory and like what factor decides when that person, you know, moves out of the way before they're going to collide with another human. And we've done studies where, in particular, like with rugby and football, things in VR where, you know, there's like a peer of mine, Jamie Mitchell, did a study and in her master's and there was two football players in VR that they were like avatars and they moved towards you. And you basically had to determine when you could hit the gap between them. Um, okay. So like that would be collision avoidance essentially in like a sport context. Um, or like, you know, we had rugby players and we had these big poles in the room and we'd put different widths of like the aperture or the space between the poles. And we determined like when, were athletes a little riskier? Would they go through a narrower space or like would they choose to go around at what point versus um, non-athletes? And so things like that. Our lab is a lot of stuff going on right now, but we use a lot of like a lot of biomechanics with off the track motion capture and like force plates, virtual reality, gaze tracking, 
things like that. And so what are you looking for after your PhD? I know I, I maybe I shouldn't ask that as a... <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a hard question. That one's uh, like I'm nearing the end, an answer, but it's um, <laughs> no. I think it's starting to form shape a little. Um, yeah. So like I kind of developed like kind of how you have this podcast. I sort of created a my own website and blog with the intention of being a little more active on the blog. <laughs> but things get busy and you kind of fall off the wagon a little bit. But Thrive Neurosport kind of emerged out of just my own ideas and I kind of see myself like when people ask me what like my area of like as a clinician is I kind of say like neurosport medicine like I don't know how to also describe it because I consider both like orthopedic things and neuro neurological um, functions as being so basically connected together right so I chose the word thrive because basically from the moment we're born we're basically evaluated on how we thrive and that's you know when we babies come out they're they're rated on a scale of how well they're thriving um and so for me like i've always wanted to kind of bridge the gap between the clinical world and even the sideline to the clinic to the lab like sort of all those three dimensions that i'm part of and i've never really wanted to get rid of my clinical practice because i think it's so valuable to translate what i do kind of immediately to someone in front of me and I've been able to educate and help so many, like my patients so much better with the research that I've done and sort of the work and, um, you know, amount of reading we have to do on these topics. So it empowers sure. them to be able to go to, you know, a neurologist or their physician and use terms that, you know, kind of surprise certain practitioners that their patient understands what they're talking about and that they can, you know, ask questions maybe that maybe isn't being addressed properly and they can advocate for themselves better. And so... The end goal is sort of to create something a little more like brick and mortar <laughs> of what I've created as uh, online and be able to create my own practice that integrates a lot of this stuff that we're doing and bringing in more objective technology to provide better assessments, more clear results and tr uh, be able to progress people and really be able to evaluate that. And in that being said, like being able to actually use some of that data and track that data and do some research in a private practice to benefit, again, like kind of keep that cycle going of what I'm kind of doing now. And so part of that, too, is I, I love teaching and stuff as well. So I don't really see myself as being a full time professor as much as being a clinician who does research and also teaches probably somewhere in there as well. I feel like you are in a very good position with your your background you know in terms of like the, the clinical stuff your stuff like the sideline stuff your academic research and you know the fact that you like the education piece or teaching piece we're you know talking about stakeholders and and the different hats you wear right it's re it's really good to have people who have experience in those different areas and can bring in folks from those different areas uh, to provide a service like that. So I think that's, that's, that's a really good mission to have. Yeah, I think it's something too that not a lot of people realize they can do post-academia. Like a lot of people see is one where it, like one path or the other. And I think there's ways that in industry we can kind of make rules and carve things out for ourselves that with the knowledge and things that we get, like skill set we gain, that it can apply really well to a profession that's not a pro like a professor. <laughs> so right. Uh, and whether that was maybe it's something that maybe happens down the road, I just don't see it happening immediately because I just I, I see my lifestyle as being a bit different from that right now. So 
I've always wanted to include kind of sports that I've seen as sort of underrepresented in the literature. And that's, especially in Canada, we don't really do a lot with rugby. Uh, a lot of it's hockey or football based. And so I've been always pulling in kind of rugby players and that sort of cohort into my studies to build some of that literature and compare to the, you know, the UK, they've got so much going on in the UK of like uh, rugby science and <laughs> a lot of different things. So yeah. I think it's a really interesting group that, you know, this, especially the skill set you need visually for that game is, is pretty demanding. And, and so the, one of the studies with the uh, adolescent group is going to be partnering with the CSIO and doing some stuff in Toronto. Um, with and CSIO? The, is the, sorry, the Canadian Sport Institute of Ontario, um, they're, uh, where they train younger athletes to become Olympians, essentially. So we're going to be doing some work with them, uh, hopefully to get some of the uh, younger age groups kind of that elite level. And so that'll be really fun as well, I think. Yeah, that's super interesting. If, you know, someone's listening and wants to check out the Thrive Neurosport, where can they connect with, with you and, and, you know, with the blog? And do you have social media and stuff like that? Yeah, of course. Um, I have a website. It's uh, www.thriveneurosport.ca. Uh, my Instagram is at Thrive Neurosport, all one word. Um, and then on Twitter, I am at Katie Mitch underscore ATPT. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate you having a chat about your research. It's some interesting stuff. I'm, I'm excited to maybe connect again once, once you're finished up your project and we can talk about what, what you found. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what this all comes to. Um, hopefully it'll be interesting. <laughs> um, but thanks so much again for inviting me on here. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Athletic Perspective Podcast. Check us out online via our website, athleticperspective.com. Again, that's athleticperspective, all one word, dot com. Or on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, whatever you prefer. We have some great guests, some great content lined up, so stay tuned for more.